0: Kelly, you know what got me thinking about today's episode topic?
1: Gosh, I never know what you're thinking.
0: (laughs) That's what makes the show dynamic. (laughs) What is the most common question or comment that you get when people find out that you host a debate podcast or that you used to do debate competitively?
1: Oh, uh, a few different things. One is why? (laughs) And another is, why aren't you a lawyer? Or you must be really unpleasant to get along with. Why aren't you a lawyer? Thought about it. I don't know. Every lawyer I know is very miserable. That was a pretty
0: big turnoff. Oh, the the joke was that the last thing was true.
1: Oh. I'm I'm not a lawyer because I'm unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> that might be that might be fair. Well, what about you? What kind of questions and comments do you get?
0: Well, the the one that got me onto this episode was, have you seen the great debaters?
1: Oh. So their, their frame of reference for debate as an activity is a movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it is Denzel. It's, a, it's actually a pretty great movie and not a bad representation of debate. If you're going to get your idea of what debate is from Hollywood.
1: Yes. I think we've seen some pretty big stinkers when it comes to the depictions of debate. And that one is very much better than most.
0: But besides just laughing at, at how poorly Hollywood can represent our little game, I do think there's some lessons that could be learned from examining Hollywood's attempt to put debate in front of a uh, viewer's eyes.
1: Lessons like maybe they should have a singular debater in the writer's room.
0: Mm. Or just make sure Denzel Washington is in every <laughs> movie about debate.
1: You know, that could be a pretty good selling point.
0: My man. tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to now extra, extra read all about it. Today we're going to be looking at how debate is represented in the media, what the differences are between it and competitive debating, what the differences are between both of those things and debating in the real world, and maybe most importantly, What lessons you, dear Indubitably listeners, can learn from each?
1: One thing that we've discussed a few times here at your trusty source on all things debate, Indubitably, the debate podcast, Mm -hmm. is that there there are certain rules of engagement that make it so that a debate can feasibly happen and is a productive discussion or activity. And I think we'll find through some of our examples that nobody else seems to have gotten that message.
0: Right, at least not in Hollywood. But I do, to be fair, think that sometimes movies and TV, because they need to be entertaining, are actually able to do some things better than quote unquote real debaters do.
1: They can very much convincingly look like they're 17 when they're 25 in a lot of cases.
0: (laughs) I was more talking about big, passionate, charismatic speeches, but I, I suppose makeup and video effects also would rank up there.
1: Hey, don't sell yourself short. We have a good history of charismatic speeches in our debate experiences as well.
0: Mm. And the other thing I think I realized as we came to a decision to do this particular episode was I don't think since Thanksgiving two years ago, we've actually done an episode on how to debate.
1: I thought you were going to say, we haven't done an episode where you had free reign to call me a bitch.
0: <laughs> that was that same episode. And <laughs> for our listeners, it was a scenario. I wasn't actually calling Kelly a bitch.
1: Well, you had free reign. If it had been real, <laughs> I think we wouldn't be here right now.
0: <laughs> Although your dad apparently thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Hilarious. I, which makes me think that he's been wanting to say that for a while too. <laughs> Either way, with Thanksgiving coming up again, one of our early episodes was a Holiday Survival Guide, uh, How to Deal with Debates at the Holiday Dinner Table. So if you think that might be useful for you in the upcoming months, go back and check that out.
1: And if you're interested in learning a bit more about things you can learn when you're watching debates depicted in film and TV, perhaps this episode will be a good guide for what you can take away and what you can discard when you see the Olsen twins do like a Model UN competition.
0: (laughs) At the end of this episode, if you if you find it useful, definitely let us know. I think that we focus in general on the content of our episodes, case studies, different philosophical questions, et cetera. And we don't, as often as maybe we could, focus on, I guess you could call it the art of debate itself, but not to toot our own horns, Kelly and I are both literally professional debate educators. And, If it's something our listeners find useful, we could certainly include more content and more episodes on how to debate or how you could take lessons from debate and then apply them to your own lives. So if this episode or that idea resonates with you, let us know at Kelly,
1: have you forgotten our handles already? Josh, we are at indubitably pod on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at indubitably
0: podcast at gmail.com. All right. so. On to that endeavor to make you all better debaters by looking at what Hollywood thinks debate is. Throughout the episode, I think we'll be including some short sample clips. We're not big enough to get copyright struck yet, I don't think, so we'll be safe. But We'll be including short sample clips just to give context from the movies and TV shows that we'll talk about. But we will also, on said media accounts, link to longer versions for you to go reference if you'd like.
1: And I'm just going to say, Fair use right now, because I think you just have to say it and then you're immune to litigation.
0: Fair use. Fair use. All right. That being said, Denzel, don't come after us because we're going to start with you. (laughs) Let's begin with the great debaters as, uh, at least in my experience, that's what people think of when they think of debate in Hollywood. And let's start with this question. Kelly, do you think that the great debaters is a fair representation of what a real debate is?
1: Aside from seeing a clip from The Great Debaters, I actually haven't seen the film at all. And it sounds like you have. So maybe you could give us a brief synopsis.
0: Yeah, the film in general is good, but it's also very much uh, just a cookie cutter mold. It might as well be Samuel L. Jackson with a basketball team or whoever with whatever sports team helping underprivileged kids from whatever community Fulfill whatever dream they happen to have, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Fill in the Disney tropes here. Uh, The movie as a whole is a good version of that.
1: So like inspiration porn?
0: Yeah, but centered around the most inspirational of all activities that high school slash college age kids can do, debate.
1: Yeah, like every single kid is like, oh, I cannot wait to join the debate team.
0: (laughs) And if I have a compelling college career. Maybe I can go pro.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go pro with debate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, that that aside, as far as the debates themselves, the way I would describe the great debaters is a highlight reel of a really good debate. To continue the sports analogy, uh, if it's an hour-long debate, this is the 45 seconds that would make it onto ESPN you know, in the evening wrap-up. To give you an example of that, Here's a couple of clips from the movie.
1: Gandhi believes one must always act with love and respect for one's opponents, even if they are Harvard debaters. (laughs) Gandhi also believes that lawbreakers must accept the legal consequences for their actions. Does that sound like anarchy? Civil disobedience is not something for us to fear. It is, after all, an American concept. You see, Gandhi draws his inspiration not from a Hindu scripture, but from Henry David Thoreau, who I believe graduated from Harvard and lived by a pond not too far from here.
0: My opponent is right about one thing. Thoreau was a Harvard grad and, like many of us, a bit self-righteous. <laughs> he once said, any man more right than his neighbors constitutes a majority of one. Thoreau the idealist could never know that Adolf Hitler would agree with his words, the beauty. And the burden of democracy is this. No idea prevails without the support of the majority. The people decide the moral issues of the day, not a majority of one. What I think The Great Debaters does is picks and chooses the most dramatic lines that could be provided during a debate or presents the most heart-wrenching stories for the viewers to cheer on. Yeah,
1: based on what I was able to garner from it, it seemed like a demonstration of rhetoric more than it was a demonstration of like logical argument construction, which I think a really good debate that happens in the real academic setting would have a combination of the two. Um and it was very much trying to like rouse the um the spirit of the audience with the powerful language, but as far as the Maybe more boring aspect of argumentation from the audience's perspective of like, here is my claim and here is my warrant for my claim. That was sort of lacking, but I don't know how good of a Hollywood film that would have made.
0: Right. I mean, I think that the producers have to think about their viewership. And speaking of viewership, how many debates, tournaments have you been to that actually have audiences?
1: I thought you were going to ask me how many debate tournaments I've gone to full stop and I do not know. But I've been to a few that have audiences like we've both attended the world championships and the grand final usually has people showing up from outside of the debate community because it's a pretty big deal. And some of the other big tournaments like the national tournament um, may have some legitimate audiences. But my parents came to debate tournaments when they were in town. (laughs) So I guess I've, I've had an audience kind of my whole career.
0: I think on uh, maybe very, very rare occasion, there might be a couple people from the community, you know, like a senior center nearby is bored and wants to stop by and see. But other than that, it's probably just debaters and, and family members.
1: Yeah. I would say the overwhelming majority of tournaments I've attended, even some of the ones that are a bit more high profile, The audience element is almost exclusively people who are already attending the tournament, if there's an audience at all.
0: And I think that that's because debate that's designed to really examine an issue or find a solution is inherently boring. It needs to be detail-oriented. It has to spend time in the gray area of a subject, parsing through really minor differences and these stories that are told in movies like the great debater don't necessarily equate to policy
1: i want to defend the boring debate a little bit because i i understand that for the average person who's not actively involved in the sport of debate it might seem boring but as an intellectual exercise to participate in i obviously find it pretty fascinating because i've centered so much of my life around it but it's not A spectator sport, I I would I would say. I think that the sport benefits the people within it more than it would an audience seeking entertainment value.
0: That's why I wanted to start with this idea of the great debaters, because it highlights if we're talking about three different types of debate, this should be a good framework for the rest of the episode. You have debate, as you said, for entertainment, which needs to be big. It needs to be emotional. It's got to get you in the gut somehow. You're telling stories of your life. You're making the audience really feel your arguments. Then you've got competitive debate, which is really a game at its core. And in the same way that somebody would move pieces around a chessboard, debaters move arguments around. And a really good chess player, or a really good debater might appreciate the moves that a player would make. But People that don't play the game, it's probably incredibly boring to them. And then last of all, you have debate in the real world, whether it be political sphere, what have you, where you're actually coming to a solution. Playing the game, it might be fun or strategic or big impassioned speeches might be entertaining to listen to, but in the political world, theoretically, at the end of the debate, we're trying to find a solution. So. I think one of the comments, if we're going to be telling our listeners how to become better debaters, one of the first things you should identify is why you're debating. What are you actually trying to accomplish in any particular foray into argumentation that you might be making?
1: And I'd say a fourth type of debate. I was going to be pretty flippant about it and say like, drunken bar room arguments. (laughs) But uh, I think the most common form of debate that people engage in, whether or not they're consciously aware that it is a form of debate, is trying to persuade people in day-to-day lives about how to make the best choice on this sort of thing for their household or do a thing at work or propose an initiative. And in that case, you're not necessarily trying to persuade an audience. You're trying to persuade the person who may be on the other side of the issue from you, which is somewhat different than I, especially competitive debate where there's a judge, um, but even more of the entertainment value debates, the flashy, showy debates, the audience is the one that judges that. Those micro debates we have, like which brand of milk should we buy? Don't buy milk. That's gross. But, you know, those sorts of things are our are, are debates in and of themselves are just they're small and they don't have an audience, but they are there's an element of persuasion to them.
0: Mm. So, OK, we're promising that we're going to, through this episode, help our listeners become better debaters. Let's get specific. We listen to the great debaters. We hear how impassioned and how emotional the speeches are. We say that they're missing specific debate skills or things that would improve the the quality of the game of debate what are some of those skills I think that the first one is debate needs clash what's clash Josh well it's funny that you ask Kelly <laughs> a lot of times I think in the movies they could be best described as two ships passing in the night right one person gives this emotional speech about a experience that they had, you know, recently, another one gives it an emotional speech about something their family member went through, but really if you think about it, neither of those experiences actually interact or engage with each other in any way. A good debate, the arguments of one side have to actually interact with the arguments of the other side, and that's what, you know, us professional debaters would refer to as clash.
1: I like to think of clash a little bit like I think of soccer, because part of your responsibility in a debate is to bring your own independent arguments, the way that you are trying to score goals. And then part of your responsibility as a debater is to take down the arguments of the other side through like refutation or deconstruction. And that would be your defensive mechanism, trying to prevent the other team from scoring on you. Um, If you were only doing goal scoring, but not defending your net, you would probably end up losing the game. And likewise, if you only defended and never tried to score a goal, you um, might keep the game nil-nil, but that's still not a win. So let's just add more metaphors
0: (laughs) to the whole mess and see if that uh, clarifies anything for anybody. Well, it's like if you're trying to build a castle and your opponent's trying to build a castle, you can't just build your own. You got to tear theirs down, too.
1: Um and then when you bake a cake.
0: <laughs> All right. So what could be a very useful way to think about this for listeners though is remember when you're in a debate, you're not the only one in a debate. It's not just you presenting your own side, but you need to make sure that you are listening and engaging with the material that's being presented by the side opposite you. And that that's an easy way to guarantee that you clash. Number two thing that I think is missing. From the great debaters is just logical cohesiveness. There are a whole bunch of logical fallacies out there. And when you just tell a story in an attempt to persuade judges, you're probably making a lot of them.
1: Yeah. When you hear anecdotes or case studies, and then that is point made, as MLK said, this, that, and the other thing, therefore I'm right. It's like that is a pretty big leap between the thing that you were using to prove your point and then saying that it has therefore proved your point without doing any of the legwork that shows how it did so.
0: Yeah, and that's a pretty common thing that people are told when they're starting, not just a debate speech, but any speech is like, start with a quote. But right off the bat, you're setting yourself up for the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, which is basically, I said something MLK said, MLK is a smart dude, therefore I'm right. To avoid these uh, logical fallacies, you need to do what oftentimes when we say that debate starts to get boring, oftentimes what they avoid in the movies to avoid being boring is the legwork of explaining, here is why that MLK quote matters, here is how it links to the rest of my material, and here is the way in which it proves that my position is correct.
1: A lot of the way that debate is presented in film the why is just assumed. And in a lot of cases, we as an audience can sometimes make those connections independently. But part of the job of the debater is to not just rest on the assumption that people understand why your example proves your side. It is having the skill of demonstrating that.
0: And maybe the most common logical fallacy besides ad hominem, would you like to translate, Kelly? Oh, is that like when you call me a bitch? Yep, that's the one. (laughs) Ad hominem is just an attack on the person. Uh, Because Kelly's a bitch, her argument is wrong. Mm, Frequently. And as much as the first part might be true, the second part is in fact a logical fallacy. I'm just kidding, Kelly. Mm,
1: No, it's okay. I like embrace it.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, besides that one, what I would argue the most common logical fallacy is in layman debating would be argumentum ad passiones that is definitely not how you pronounce it but that's how I'm going to pronounce it
1: is that um i don't know if i've actually heard the latin for that one i'm going to assume that's like if i talk really intensely that means i'm correct
0: pretty close that would be an appeal to emotion hmm. and it is an informal fallacy characterized by the manipulation of the recipient's emotions in order to win an argument especially in the absence of factual evidence
1: i've only heard it in the english as appeal to emotion
0: so for our listeners how could we best avoid making these logical fallacies
1: i think being aware of them is the first step um mm. and that's something that you can garner through you know listening to us because we do talk about fallacious reasoning from time to time but i think a really good exercise is to get a list of logical fallacies and there's tons out there. And then just a really good place to identify fallacious reasoning is observing advertising because a lot of advertising rests on appealing to specific things like appealing to authority, appealing to emotions, um, making dubious links between a cause and effect, like the slippery slope. Like you'll see that a lot with the, I don't know, insurance commercials where somebody Forgets to lock their front door, and then, like their entire neighborhood has a crater in it the next day. Like the, the exaggerated examples of of these sorts of claims, I think, are really evident there. And then when you see them there, you start to see them kind of everywhere
0: mm-hmm. and then the last thing I think that can be boring but useful and so lacking in media representations of debate would be comparative analysis. And that is essentially, weighing the benefits or harms of your ideas against the benefits or harms of the opposition side's ideas. Very related, I think, to the concept we just talked about of clash.
1: And a good part of comparative analysis that I think makes for a better debate in a real competitive sense or actually in real discussions is that nobody's idea is ever perfect, But a lot of the ways that it's depicted in media is that one side is flawless, impervious to criticism, absolutely on the right side of history. The other side is objectively evil. And it's usually shades of gray when it comes to either side of an issue. And part of weighing one side against the other might be acknowledging the bad parts of your advocacy, but how the good parts of it are more... and and worth the cost of whatever harmful things may happen.
0: Mm -hmm. And this can be, you know, very meticulous, very time-consuming, very detail-oriented, very boring, but uh, very useful in the game of debate in terms of trying to win and very useful in the real-world debate of trying to come to an actual solution. How much harm versus how much benefit would x or y policy or legislation actually cause and at the end of the day that's how we make informed decisions on how to move forward on complex and controversial issues
1: so we have a great example of at least rhetorically strong debate here and we've talked about what makes for a good debate even if it's not you know flashy enough to make it to the movies so so what next
0: next let's go to shitty debate
1: oh my favorite
0: (laughs) yeah most of the debates i've judged in my life (laughs) (laughs) sorry to anybody listening who i've judged um the 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 worst representation i think of debate that we can find in media at least one of the worst would be from a good show i'll give them that just bad debate community
1: well is this bad debate that was trying to be good in the first place? Or is it bad debate as like a satirical tool?
0: Oh, Either way, <laughs> it gives us a lot of lessons on what not to do. And I think it's fitting that the title of at least the clip of the episode that we will link on our socials is, it's debate, not American Idol.
1: In this clip, you'll hear Jeff Winger, who's one of the main characters in Community, trying to... Be persuasive in his advocacy of the side of the debate he is on, which is that man is inherently evil. And keep in mind, he uh, he was a practicing lawyer, albeit without having the qualifications he needed. But he was a practicing lawyer, and this is the attempt to, he made to be persuasive on the issue of the inherent evil of man. Fair
0: use. Oh, fair fair use. This feels so formal. Let's just talk. People are evil. They can't help it. I didn't catch your name. It's Jean. Take Jean here. She spent a lot of time this morning making herself look so lovely. Tell me, Jean, how many people bother to tell you how great you look today? None. Man is evil. But you just said how great I look. For my own selfish purposes. The fact is, as hot as you look, and it is quite hot, I wouldn't have said anything. So what I'm taking away from this clip is that if I suck up to the judges and make the audience think I'm cool, I win.
1: I'm not saying it never works, but I am saying that most of the time it does not work.
0: <laughs> I've actually seen this. So Kelly and I both have, have taught debate uh, I- at university before. I've seen this in a lot of classes I've taught where you have a competitive confident people that have no idea what they're talking about, but they still want to win. Mm -hmm. This is what those speeches sound like a lot of the time.
1: And I will say that it does work sometimes because one of the aspects of a debate tournament, as they happen in the real world, is that sometimes you pull people in to judge debate rounds who maybe don't have a ton of debate experience or maybe even any. And so their metric for what persuades them might be quite different than
0: like Josh and and I have
1: when we come to judge debates.
0: Right. And if we gave you the framework earlier about the difference between debates for entertainment, debate as a game, and debate to find solutions, like political debates, I think this is another important framework to keep in mind. If you don't know what world you're debating in it can be much harder for you to make decisions on how to debate effectively. So in this case what you're saying Kelly I think is really good. There's what we call lay judges which is just random people who don't know much about debate and probably have their opinion made up on a topic already are more susceptible to logical fallacies because they don't know what they are, etc. You have lay judges, you have quote unquote professional judges who are experts in the game of debate. And then you have the general voting public who politicians or corporations through advertising or propaganda campaigns might be trying to convince. And perhaps the number one rule of persuasion is know your audience. And for debate, I suppose we could modify that slightly to know your judge.
1: I think it's important we say right now that we do not devalue people who are lay judges. We think that debaters who are effective at persuasion, they should be comprehensive and they should be able to be understood by anybody, regardless of debate experience and the opinions of lay people. <laughs> lay people
0: are valid, is what I'm saying. Well, and this is something that's interesting to, to really turn back time and maybe peel back the curtain to this particular podcast. When we started it, we kind of had a decision of, do we want this podcast to be geared towards competitive debaters, which is most of the people we knew at the time? Or do we want this podcast to be geared towards the general public? I know so far, it's seemed as though we're we're being critical of the great debaters, or we're being critical of, of Jeff Winger, cool guy. But I think we can be equally critical of competitive debaters as much as they're playing the game better and they understand argumentation theory, logical fallacies, you know, link work, the toolman model of argumentation, things like this. A lot of times they're also missing pretty basic skill sets like persuasion, like empathy, like how to talk to a normal person. And we decided early on with the podcast that we want our episodes to be accessible to everybody and not just people that play the game of debate.
1: And taking that outside of just the podcast, I'm always going to value the debate that has the best discussion come from it more than the debate that it was just a strategic win. Winning feels good. Congratulations. But was that actually sticking to what the intention of the activity
0: is? the moral at the end of this story probably throughout the episode is going to be balance. So in the first two examples, I think that we're mostly speaking to non-competitive debaters and saying, "Hey, if you fall into the great debater camp, you know, that's how you speak right now. One good for you, you're very persuasive, very confident <laughs> speaker. You know, or if you fall into the community camp of debater, like that's great but make sure that you have some substance and some structure to your argumentation as well. But a lot of our listeners are competitive debaters on collegiate or or even high school teams. And I think in those cases too, the feedback here would be, don't get so caught up in the game of debate that you forget at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is persuade people. And emotions and passion and to be frank, being entertaining is persuasive. Yeah. People are not purely logical animals. Be the cool guy.
1: Be like cool guys, too.
0: <laughs> we're so cool, Kelly. Uh, are we? No. No. All right. Now that we're all expert debaters, this next example is from, and I'll give our listeners a guess on who came across this one. This next example is from the Gilmore Girls. Hint, It wasn't me.
1: I think this just shows how persuasive I am that I finally got Josh to agree to watch Gilmore Girls in any capacity. And not only that, but include it on one of our episodes. I I win. I just
0: win. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, the Gilmore Girls, I thought this was an interesting clip. We'll We'll play it for you now. And while you listen to it, I think, fair use, that what you want to be looking for is a little bit of insight into the relationships in a debate.
1: And those relationships could be anything from the relationships between the debate partners who are on the same side of the issue, the relationships they have with their opponents, relationships with the audience, with the people who are judging them, et cetera. There's a lot of personal elements involved. Fair use. Fair use.
0: Hey, there you are. Where were you? Sorry, Paris wanted to do a sound check, and she found some problems with the acoustics in the room. The so layout on this row of seats is causing a bass problem. We've got to move this whole row over a foot. Este. Just move these people out. Mueva este gente. Mueva, mueva.
1: Well, Brad. Paris. I
0: guess we're going mano a mano today, huh?
1: Oh, God. I will be the judge, along with Mrs. Gladstone.
0: Mrs. O'Malley is impregnable, but yesterday I complimented Mrs. Gladstone's dumpy outfit and bought her an ice cream sandwich, and she practically licked
1: my hand in gratitude. Nice Cole.
0: The College of Law has prepared a lengthy summary
1: that I'd like to use in my remaining time. Time? What? That's it. Time's up. Oh, but if I could just have a few seconds to rebut their charge of the cruelty of the act. We take it back. You can't take it back. It's a debate. Okay, that's enough cruelty for one day, Paris. Your team has won.
0: Congratulations.
1: Really? Thank you thank you very
0: much all right this debater was kind of mean
1: harris geller
0: yeah is that like a main character from the show
1: she is definitely a common um presence in the show and she is competitive in many aspects so it's no surprise that she would be interested in competitive debate and this is
0: Pretty accurate. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not innocent of this myself. Uh, A lot of debaters are not the nicest, but I got trophies.
1: Yeah, me too. You got (laughs) you got some of the better trophies, though. I have to
0: admit, because we were mean.
1: You didn't, and I had to clarify this when I was coaching too. That you didn't win because you were mean. You were just so good that you got away with being mean.
0: (laughs) I don't know. We can we can have that debate later. But I think that there's (laughs) there's some benefit, you have to walk a very fine line between being mean and garnering some level of credibility as like the authority on the topic.
1: Well, what's the meanest thing you think you've ever done in debate?
0: Here's me defending myself. (laughs) I'm a very big proponent of the idea of punching up. So if I am in a debate with teams that are clearly not quite at the same level, I am one of the nicest debaters out there. And I think that you can gain credibility through that process. But if you're on a stage in a final round of like, say the national championships and theoretically, everybody up there are the top four debate teams in the United States of America. I think you could be a little bit mean because there's an expectation that they all can handle it.
1: And you're also probably playing up a little bit to the audience as well. And the, uh you know, maybe cheekiness of being a slightly, slightly rude to somebody kind of plays well in that scenario.
0: In a weird way, you can potentially be mean and fulfill this next tip that I'll be giving you guys but it's difficult and and that one takes a balance. But I think the important takeaway here, as much as we are making fun of Jeff Winger and then we have this contrast now with ex-Gilmore girl whose name I refuse to memorize.
1: Paris Geller. She's not one of the Gilmore girls. She's a Gilmore hanger honor.
0: All right. Well, Paris, not Gilmore. The important thing is to be persuasive, you have to be likable. And that doesn't mean you have to be this huge charismatic personality you can be understated you can be quiet but if you want people to vote for you at anything people need to like you not sure how ted cruz got elected but you know there's exceptions to every rule
1: in the case of ted cruz um it could be that the other people are so much more unlikable that they are the most likable by default (laughs)
0: <laughs> I can't imagine that was the case with somebody who was less likable than him.
1: Well, ideologically, probably considering his his voting constituency, right? But in, in competitive debate, you need to at least make the effort to try to bring people into your side rather than just exclusively exploding the other side. Because um, it looks ruthless and cruel and mean. And you want to have some something that people want to say yes to that you are offering.
0: Mm. It's just an important thing to consider because an activity that, by definition, you score points by telling somebody else that they're dumb to say that you need to be likable can seem counterintuitive, but it is very important to being persuasive.
1: Well, don't just out and out say that people are being dumb. There are ways to... (laughs) nicely engage with their arguments and respectfully challenge them without being demeaning about it.
0: There are ways to talk trash and be likable. There's also ways to just be nice and be likable. That's probably easier if that suits your personality. But the point is, don't, don't forget that even though the activity pits you against people, and even if it is a competition, at the end of the day, you're trying to convince people that you're right. And if people want you to be right because they like you, they're more likely to think that you're right.
1: Yeah, it's not exclusively about logic. It's not exclusively about making those arguments as strong as possible and maybe not even just about rhetoric. There are biases, conscious and unconscious, that sometimes play into how decisions are made.
0: And this is one area where I think that the real world or the movies beat competitive debate, there are so many successful competitive debaters that aren't able to translate that to the real world because they have all of the logical fallacies, all of the link chains, all of the strategies, all of the meta debate on lock, but they do not understand the power of persuasion, how emotion plays into that, how likability plays into that, et cetera, et cetera.
1: And that's where I say that I think some debaters are bad at communicating, because when you take all of these things that you are successful with, maybe in a debate round, and you try to utilize them in normal, everyday human interactions, and they don't work, that is confusing. But nobody else is agreeing to play the game that you're playing if you're bringing your debate self into, like, I don't know, your study
0: group. Right. Or politics. Exactly. Exactly. One of my favorite examples of that in media would be from the movie, Thank You for Smoking. Have you seen this one, Kelly?
1: Have I seen this movie? I used to show it to my debaters because even though it's not ostensibly a movie about debate, it's a movie about persuasion. And I think that it has some very uh, good advice on on how to maybe apply some of these concepts into
0: argumentation. Mm Mm-hmm. So the movie is about a man who is a lobbyist for the tobacco industry, and he is trying to explain to his son what he does, and he gives his son this little lesson, which is a fair use lesson. Fair use. So what happens when you're wrong? Joey, I'm never wrong. But you can't always be right.
1: Well, if it's your job to be right, then you're never wrong.
0: But what if you are wrong?
1: Okay, let's say that you're defending chocolate, and I'm defending vanilla. Now, if I were to say to you, vanilla is the best flavor ice cream, you'd say?
0: No, chocolate is.
1: Exactly. But you can't win that argument. So, I'll ask you. So you think chocolate is the end-all and be-all of ice cream, do you?
0: It's the best ice cream. I wouldn't order any of it. Oh, so it's all chocolate for you, is it? Yes, chocolate is all I need. Well, I need more than chocolate. And for that matter, I need more than vanilla. I believe that we need freedom and choice when it comes to our ice cream. And that, Joy Naylor, that is the definition of liberty. But that's not what we're talking about. Ah, but that's what I'm talking about. But you didn't prove that vanilla is the best. I didn't have to. I proved that you're wrong. And if you're wrong, I'm right. But you still didn't convince me. That's that I'm not after you. I'm after them. So, Kelly, would this argument work in a competitive debate?
1: I don't think so, because it is basically changing the terms of the discussion into I'm trying to decide if it's a red herring or if it's a straw man. (laughs) But it is definitely using fallacious reasoning to get the discussion off the intended track.
0: Pop quiz for our listeners. Let's see who's been paying attention to the episode so far. What is this guy specifically missing? In this argument, do the do the Jeopardy music, Kelly? Do do
1: do 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 do. Okay, is this fair use? Too <laughs> boop, boop, boop. fair yeah, use. Yeah. Oh, fair do use. we need
0: if we? Okay, fair use. <laughs> if your answer was he's missing Clash, then you are absolutely correct. That's why this line of argumentation fails. Is he takes the debate somewhere completely different and does not interact with the opponent's, in this case, his son, answer in any way.
1: I didn't know you were going to do a pop quiz, and I answered in my head flash, and I'm so happy that I got it right.
0: (laughs) One for one for Kelly. (laughs) Finally a point. Final Jeopardy.
1: Right. This would not work effectively, most likely in a competitive debate round. But considering how he explains what his role is to always be right, this absolutely works when we're talking about trying to persuade people who are not agreeing to the terms of a debate. So the public or the political arena or what have you, I would say that this is a tactic we see all of the time from politicians and from advertisers and lobbyists and so on. And it's an effective rhetorical tool. It's maybe not an effective logical tool because you and I and all of the listeners of our fine podcast are experts on logic now, so we can see through it. But most people... Don't really have that kind of interest or training in in specific argumentative analysis. And this could persuade some of them.
0: I would venture a guess, and for any of you who happen to be watching the Republican primary debates that are going on right now, that at least 50% of the answers use this strategy. Avoid the question, avoid the challenges, talk about only what you want to talk about, and only talk about issues or taglines that you know everybody's on board with? My answer is democracy.
1: And they train those politicians to do just that, to take a question they may not have been expecting and wedge in the intended punchy line that they wanted to get across the debate stage. Whether or not it was relevant, they're looking for an opportunity to say what they had Preordained would be their their conclusion, their answer, their point they wanted to make.
0: Dang, we started this episode by bashing on movies and political debates, and now I feel like we've sort of pulled a one eighty, and now we're just bashing on competitive debate. This is where competitive debate is out of touch with the real world: is the things that it prioritizes don't necessarily translate into um, successful persuasive attempts. In, for example, like we've been talking about the political sphere, because I think sometimes academic debaters can get so caught up in the semantics of a debate that they lose the plot of what it is supposed to be. And we can go back to Kelly's Gilmore Girl example to hear exactly that happening.
1: And referencing their last point, which erroneously cited South Carolina as a state that has neither a statute nor common law which prohibits assisted suicide. When we know that North Carolina is the proper citation, their subsequent argument falls short of even a level of speciousness due to the fact that it doesn't even have a ring of factual truth, let alone its substance. At that point, Harris is just pummeling people who have already been quite pummeled. So it it doesn't look very sporting at, at a minimum.
0: As much as she might be right, it is still a logical fallacy in some way. She's so proud of the fact that she knew it was North Carolina and not South Carolina, but she kind of misses the plot of what an argument is supposed to be accomplishing. Proving it was North instead of South doesn't necessarily undermine the actual thrust of whatever particular argument the other side was actually trying to make.
1: Yeah, like what was the actual content of what they were saying? You misrepresenting or mistakenly saying the wrong word is not invalidating the point wholesale.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this would be another piece of advice to people. And this is very common at every level of debate, in my opinion, from just arguments on the street up until pretty high level academic rounds. Don't be so excited. When you catch somebody presenting a fact that's a little bit off.
1: I would even recommend being as charitable as possible rather than saying my opponent's shitty argument that they made using the wrong state. that they weren't even right about it at all. I'm going to even tear apart further than I ever could before because they're such fucking idiots like that doesn't look really good for you.
0: Dang calm down Kelly.
1: Yeah. Well I'm just saying like I had to learn the hard way to be a little bit nicer in debate and outside of debate and in every aspect of my life.
0: <laughs> and, and this kind of circles back to the idea of likability. If I was debating somebody and they got a fact wrong by a little bit like this, I think the best way to go about addressing it would be, I know the example that my opponent is talking about. I actually think that it's North Carolina that they mean, not South Carolina. But to get to the point of the argument that they were making, Here's why we think that that at its core is wrong. So, yeah, you you drop that little fact check just to prove that, you know, better than they do, but you don't have to be mean about it. You get credibility, you get likability, and then you get to the point.
1: I mean, if that's how you refuted my arguments when we were competing, I probably would have cried a lot less.
0: Oh, (laughs) I would have had less trophies. I don't know. Who knows?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I don't know.
0: But people do get so satisfied at being able to prove their opponents wrong, even in the most minuscule of ways. So as a piece of advice to somebody getting into a debate, or in this case, more often than not, an argument, discipline yourself to to not lose track of the deeper issue because there's an easy, you know, low-hanging fruit, if you will, that you can pick.
1: And just like in real life, pick your battles. Is that really the most important thing that you want to use your
0: precious time addressing? Life is short. Life is short. And also, a lot of times in debate, your speaking time is short. And so prioritization is a a huge deal. And this is something in the movies, when they're on a roll and they're really hitting you in the feels, there doesn't seem to be any time limits. But almost every... As far as I know, every competitive debate format, every type of academic debate, every type of political debate has time limits. If you don't realize how short two minutes is, pick something you're passionate about. Pick a side. You can just do this in your bathroom in front of a mirror for all I care. Set a timer for two minutes, start talking about it and see how fast those two minutes go away.
1: Do it about a topic that you're pissed off about and try to get out why you're pissed off about something within two
0: minutes, you will, you two minutes is so insufficient. Mm. Even, even for us to be perfectly honest, we run hour long episodes and the vast majority of episodes, we still have things we would have liked to talk about that. We either don't bring up or we have two hour long recordings that have to be cut down to an hour So of course, almost half of the material that we talked about gets cut and that's an hour. Most speeches are five minutes, maybe seven minutes max, and you have to fit in this huge philosophical argument and how you're going to solve the world's problems in seven minutes. Mm, Not going to happen. Prioritization is a huge skill that needs to be developed if you want to be an effective debater.
1: People in debate generally do talk a little bit faster than normal conversational speed. And they also try to be efficient with the way that they express their ideas, and that's a concept called word economy, which is trying to get out complex ideas without being overly verbose.
0: It is something to think about, though. That probably the most common piece of feedback I get to this show is people listening to a particular episode and then asking afterwards, well, why didn't you talk about X? And my response is almost always, sometimes, damn, you're right, I wish I thought about that, but (laughs) almost always, what would you have cut to replace it? Right, Because there is a time limit, and so there does have to be prioritization. And so if there's something we should have talked about that we didn't, something we did talk about has to go. And oftentimes, people aren't really thinking in those terms when they bring up ideas that they say we should have talked about.
1: You know, we don't have to have a time limit.
0: (laughs) Oh God. I see the statistics of how long people listen to the episode. I don't (laughs) think you know this, Kelly. What percentage of people do you think on average finish our episodes? Probably less than a third. Uh, It's almost exactly a third, like 32% on average. The other 66, I don't know what you're doing with your lives, but You can handle 20 more minutes of listening. We should save like a really salacious detail
1: for the last five minutes every episode. Manipulate our audience that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, to help our statistics out. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be great. Anyway, the last movie I think is worth bringing up. And if you don't do competitive debate, please never watch this movie. But if you do, you have to because it is so bad. And we're not going to necessarily play any clips from this, but just to give you a bit of context, the movie is called Listen to Me, and it culminates in a national debate championship where the topic is essentially the Supreme Court should repeal Roe versus Wade. If you're not familiar, that is the abortion decision.
1: This movie is wild. Lucky for you. I rewatched like the pivotal argumentative scene in this in this movie, and it is so much worse than I thought it was.
0: (laughs) Well, dramatically, this uh, final round with said pivotal scene is argued in front of said Supreme Court, which, first of all, I don't think would ever happen. I don't think the Supreme Court has ever watched a debate tournament.
1: Can you imagine? Oh, we're only like deciding how to interpret the founding document of our entire country. Uh, Let's like take an hour and listen to some asshole college students make arguments that don't matter.
0: (laughs) Well, what's, what's important about this, one, if you are a competitive debater that listens to our show, watch the movie. But two, more important for this episode is the other thing I think that would never happen on top of debaters having a tournament in front of the Supreme Court would be a debate at an academic tournament About abortion.
1: Right. That is like a third rail topic that does not often get debated. Or if it does, it is only debated in maybe part, uh, a topic that doesn't quite address specifically abortion because it is such a personal and controversial issue. And there's also some efforts to be sensitive to potential. People in the room having experienced an issue like this, which a lot of other topics, like I don't know how many nuclear weapons you personally have, Josh, but I don't have any. So a topic about like nuclear disarmament probably wouldn't have a very big personal
0: aspect for me. Mm -hmm. And this is a larger debate that, that probably deserves an entire episode of its own. But to me, it seems a bit antithetical to have an activity that is supposed to explore controversial and impactful topics, but then trying to create a complete safe space within that activity so that nobody has to relive previous trauma, nobody has to hear discussions that around issues that might have impacted them, etc. It's definitely a, a challenging balance to draw, but as far as the current existing academic debate world is concerned, There are certainly topics that have become taboo and they've fallen fairly strongly on one side of that decision.
1: And I appreciate the emphasis on making a a debate as a tournament, as an activity, what have you, a welcoming and safe space for everybody. And I recognize that there are probably some costs to the activity itself to not be able to fully have a complete discussion on every possible topic. But I think that there might be some overcorrecting that we're seeing right now that may go away a little bit in the future once things kind of, you know, reach an equilibrium.
0: Well, because again, if the goal of collegiate or high school or whatever, middle school debate is to prepare people to have these conversations in the future, some of the most impactful conversations are also some of the most controversial and The reason they're impactful is because they affect people's lives very directly, and so it's sort of a catch-22 where now we're undermining the point of the activity, which is to equip people with the ability to engage in these conversations by ensuring that they don't have to talk about them in the forum where they're supposed to be practicing. There's certainly not an easy answer to this, but like you said, I think that tournaments might have Taken it a bit too far, in my opinion, in one direction.
1: Yeah, I personally, there are topics that I find kind of upsetting that I will still engage with because I want to be able to participate in the real world when those discussions happen because they will be happening whether or not I'm uncomfortable with them. But that's that's a personal choice, you know. There are plenty of reasons that people may not feel the same way, and and they are valid reasons as well. But This particular movie, I think, chose this topic specifically to try to get audiences all worked up about such a controversial issue.
0: Mm -hmm. What can we learn from this as listeners trying to become better debaters? It ties in once again to the idea of likability. You need to be cognizant about your efforts to discuss these issues comprehensively, but also empathetically. With the end goal of trying to find solutions that are going to improve the lives of everyone involved. In my mind, that's the balance. You talk about any subject, nothing's off the table, but that assumes that everybody that's involved in the discussion has the best interests of everybody else in mind. That's, I think, an important prerequisite to having a a system in which you can address any topic that affects. People personally, directly, et cetera.
1: Taking inspiration from notable politician, and he was a politician, he was mayor of Chicago, Jerry Springer. I'm going to ask, what have we learned today? We have learned that the entertainment value of debate is important. Real debate requires appealing to people's emotions, appealing to their preferences, appealing to their desire to see something entertaining. And fake debate, like we saw, seems to diminish the other aspect of an important feature of debate being the actual logical construction of argument and engaging with the arguments on the other side of the issue. So maybe in a perfect world, real debate, regardless if it's competitive or political or what have you, and movie debate can like merge a little bit more and learn a little bit from each other and and Find a better balance.
0: So you're saying, if you want to be a good debater, you got to be entertaining, you got to be smart, and you got to be nice.
1: Mm, I don't know about the nice part.
0: That's true. I felt dirty as I said it. You've got to be likable, and as we've proven, likable doesn't necessarily mean nice.
1: Yeah, you can definitely get away with being neutral or not overtly evil.
0: Yeah, that that works. I would say to summarize this more seriously. Entertaining is good. Persuasive, emotive is good. Logically consistent, smart, play the game correctly is good. And maybe instead of nice, what about empathetic? Because I think you could be mean and empathetic at the same time. A lot of comedians make jokes that seem like they're at the expense of people, but the comedians are super likable. And at their core, you could tell that they actually do care about the people they're joking about.
1: Yeah, I guess it's going to depend on. Empathy for whom? Empathy for your opponent is probably less important than maybe empathy for a group you're advocating on behalf of. Um, but showing a little bit of humanity, I think, overall is what we're saying here. Showing that you care about actual people and the impacts that things have on their lives rather than just whether or not you're winning.
0: I don't know. I've felt some serious empathy for some of my opponents. Because I felt real bad for them,
1: was that were you just directing pity at me?
0: <laughs> no, just just anybody that I might have beaten in the past mm-hmm. who whoever may or may not fall into that category
1: I'm pretty sure I've beaten you at least like once, right
0: I'm sure you have.
1: <laughs>